Haggai chapter 1. We have made it to the post-Babylonian captivity era. The first group of Jews have returned to the homeland. We find the background for Haggai, and not just the background, but the setting itself for the prophet Haggai and the next prophet, which we'll study next time we're together. But um, we find the setting in Ezra chapters 1 through 5. So I encourage you, not during Sunday school, but I encourage you later um, to read Ezra 1 through 5 and you're able to get a better grasp on Haggai's message here, and you'll see some of the things that Haggai is specifically referencing. But call this this lesson Haggai, time to build. There were people that were saying it wasn't time to build the temple, but God gave the prophet Haggai the message that it was time to build. So let's read verse 1 here. We'll see the introduction to the book. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of um, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying... Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So let's talk about, first of all, the date here for just a moment. He says it's in the second year of Darius's reign. Now, this is not the same Darius that is mentioned in Daniel. We talked about Daniel last month in the children's service. Um, We talked about this Darius. Darius was a different fellow altogether. That Darius was a regional leader in Babylon um, under the Syrian Empire. This, or Persian Empire, rather, sorry. Um, This Darius is actually the ruler of Persia. In fact, I've got in my notes here, let's see. There was Cyrus who defeated Babylon. After him, he's referred to the second ruler um, in the biblical era is referred to as Artaxerxes. Here in the book of Ezra, actually, um, history calls him Cambyses. And then there was this Darius that he's mentioned here and in Ezra 6 as well. And then after him would have been Ahasuerus or Xerxes, the husband of Esther. But here we have Darius, this third man to come to the throne, since this is the end of the Babylonian captivity era for the Jews. Ezra 5 aligns with the writing of this book, as I've already said. In fact, if we flip over there really quickly, Ezra chapter 5, I want to read verse 1 and 2. Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. So our historical context, as I said, 
um, Ezra chapter 5 and the building of the temple. Now, if we look at our chart here, we've been following the timeline of the prophets. We're getting down towards the end. This is, would be the fi year 520 B.C., the same year that the prophet Zechariah prophesied. In fact, when we study Zechariah, we'll, um, we'll look at how their prophecies overlapped because um, in the book of Haggai, you have five separate um, sermons and um, the prophecies or sermons of Zechariah were given interspersed between those. So Hag Haggai would preach, and then Zechariah would preach a message, and then Haggai would preach, and Zechariah, it was like a Bible conference going on there for a few months in the land of Israel with these two speakers, Haggai and Zechariah. Let's talk about the characters in the book. First of all, we have Haggai, the prophet, his name means festive or festival. It's likely that he was born on a feast day, probably, and that's probably how he got his name. Zerubbabel, he was the governor. And it's interesting, the name Zerubbabel means sown in Babylon or a descendant of Babylon. So he was, can you guess where he was born? Um, he would have been born in Babylon. And then Joshua, also referred to as Jeshua, he was the high priest. And so these are the three specific names, other than Darius, that we're going to see here in the book of Haggai. <clears throat> so let's jump right into the, the messages of Haggai. It's a, as I've said, it's a series of five messages. You'll look in some Bible dictionaries and Bible commentaries, and they're going to give you four messages. And it's funny because in one of the outlines I was looking at yesterday, they left out a chunk, a small chunk of Haggai. And it wasn't even listed. And anyway, that just puzzled me because it is one of his sermons, a shorter one, yes, in response to what he's preached and their response. But nonetheless, I would outline this as five separate sermons. The first sermon here is a sermon of correction. This would have been preached in on our calendar, somewhere around August or September. Not as easy because of calendar changes and differences in our calendars and their calendars to pin exactly what day. And depending on which commentary you're looking at, will depend on which month they put it in and which day of the month. Um, some commentators are very adamant about which day of the month it was. I'm not sure how specific we can be on that. You know, there are some that we can be. You notice our, me and when my boys are in here after a while, you'll notice we're all wearing Texas flags, Texas seal cufflinks today. Today is the anniversary of the massacre at Goliath. That's a date we know and that we can remember. Um, but some of these dates with calendar changes aren't so easy to remember. Aren't, can't, we can't be so specific about Anyway, this message begins here in verse number three. But verse number two gives the purpose, the reason for the preaching of this sermon. He said, God has said, the Lord Jehovah has told him, the Lord of hosts has told him that the people are saying it is not time to build. If you read Ezra chapter five, you see a number of these reasons that they gave. In fact, I made some notes yesterday 
we could call, we could take this sermon and break it down into three parts. Number one, hypocritical excuses. Number two, harsh rebuke. And number three, hard work. Because he begins here with giving this statement that people are saying it's not time to build. But if we look at Ezra, we understand some of the reasons why they didn't think it was time to build. Number one, it was inconvenient. It was going to be hard work. They were going to have to go up to the mountains. They were going to have to cut the timber themselves. They were going to have to bring it down. They were going to have to build the house. It was inconvenient. Secondly, it was difficult. And in Ezra, we find some of the difficulties they had were um, they, they had people that had settled there in the area. They were coming in and they were telling them, oh, we want to take part in this. We're going to help you build. And they said, no, you don't have part with us. And they started giving them problems. They even wrote a letter to um, the ruler of Persia and he responded saying, stop building. So God has told them to build. Two rulers before sent them back there to build the temple, gave them money to do it, um, but, but there's all this conflict going on, <clears throat> and so the people aren't wanting to build because it's difficult. It is not politically popular. They have enemies that are speaking out against them. They're not wanting to do it. But then as we see in verse 4 at the beginning of the prophecy, there's another reason why they didn't think it was time to build. In verse 3, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, it is time for you, O ye, to dwell, sorry, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lieways? I would say a third reason, a third excuse they had was a preoccupation with their own homes. Things got hard building the temple. What did they do? They put their energies toward building their own houses. They put nice paneling on the walls in their houses. They sealed up their houses. They made their houses look nice, but the house of God had not yet been finished. And then he goes on to the harsh rebuke. He begins explaining to them exactly why, um, or exactly what the consequences were. And they were experiencing the consequences, but were totally unaware of it. He says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now he gives them some things to consider. Look what he says here. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there, there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Have you ever done that? Your paycheck comes in and you pay the bills and there's just nothing left. Everything awake. You pay the bills and there's nothing left. And in the nation of Israel, this was such a severe thing they were facing at this time. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God has said this a second time. They should consider. Now he tells them more. What does he say? Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. He says, go up, bring wood, build the house. This preacher likes three points. He gives three points a number of times here. 
Um, J. Vernon McGee says this is a good fundamentalist sermon outline right here. And as he was talking about it, then he went on for the next 30 minutes to preach about these three. And boy, was it convicting. Just the need for hard work. Go up to the mountains, bring the wood, build the house. And what would God do? He said, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. So he, he, he calls them on the carpet for claiming it wasn't time to build. Then he shows them the consequences they're suffering right now. Anytime we start having severe financial problems, we need to start praying and saying, God, are you trying to tell me something? Are you trying to get my attention? That's what the prophet Haggai is saying. He's saying, you got all this going on, but you're not asking. What's the problem? He said, consider your ways. In other words, if you start paying attention, you're going to know why you're having the problem you're having. Well, what was the problem? They built their own houses. They had their own houses all nice and fixed up, but the house of God was in ruin still. In verse 9, ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. You said, where did all my money go? God said, I blew on it. How does he blow on it? Bill collectors, credit card bills, the water bill. We got home last summer. We had been gone for, I think it was when we were gone to Sound Foundations, gone a month. And when we got back home and got our water bill, we had an enormous water bill. So Laura called the water company. And said, we've been gone. We've had the water shut off to our house. There has been no water usage on our property. The lady said, well, it looks to me like somebody filled their swimming pool. She said, well, we weren't home. We don't have a swimming pool. Well, it looks like somebody must have tapped into your water and filled their swimming pool while you were gone. Anyway, there was nothing they could do about it. What did God do that day? He went, um, God can just blow on our money so quickly. And I, I mean, specifically, I don't think that was a day of chastisement for me. It was a day to just have to trust God because somebody filled their swimming pool with my water and I had to pay for it. So, and nobody around us has a swimming pool, so it seems odd to us. But anyway, but that's the idea. God just blew on it. Where did it go? I don't know where it went. Why saith the Lord of hosts? He says, this is exactly why I blew on your finances and on your crops because of mine house that is waste and you run every man unto his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of your hands. They were in trouble. Now look what happened when they heard this message. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. So they had a responsibility. God told them to work. So it didn't matter what was happening in the book of Ezra. That's what's happening to them right now. It didn't matter what the neighbors were saying. It didn't matter what the political poll said. God said build, and they were supposed to build. And when God gives us instructions, it's our responsibility to obey his voice and not someone else's. 
I've only shared what I'm about to share with my wife and my dad. But a few months back, well, let me say a good year and a half, two years back, um, as I saw what the end of, I call it the end of COVID because things start going back to normal. I talked to somebody yesterday who said, this is never going to end. I finally decided to go to a restaurant today because it's never going to end. Oh, they said, we've got to get on with our lives. Yes, we've got to get on with our lives. But when we're coming towards the end and people were leaving the church or not coming back to the church, um, I began to get really discouraged about it. We get up to lead the singing, you know, and there weren't as many people out here singing. And it was really discouraging. And I went home and I was praying about it. And um, the Lord just told me very simply, it's time to build. And I began to look at my perspective of the whole thing and realized I was looking at empty seats and who wasn't in those seats anymore. And God said, there's some new seats to fill. That's something to be excited about. We don't have to worry about space anymore. We got space. I mean, it was just, and so as I began to think about this, and I thought, how would I respond to somebody in the church that comes up to me discouraged? How could I encourage them? And I went to Laura, and I said, if anybody comes to us and says, oh, it's just so depressing looking around at all the empty seats, I said, we need to tell them, but think, that's more space we can fill. So it's about perspective. It's time to build. Anyway, um, a couple months back, I received a phone call one day. It was a man that I know he, he had my best intent. His intention seemed to be for my best. Let me just say it that way. But he told me, he said, North Belt is finished. It's over. It's closing. It's time for you to move on. You need to go to a different church. There's no future for you there. You're young and you're energetic. And he gave me all this list of things. And so I was given instruction on exactly what to do. I needed to move back to Louisiana. I needed to go back and study under my dad so I could train to be something. I don't know. Anyway, go train under my dad to be a pastor, I guess, and then go into the pastorate before I get too old to do that. Anyway, so I'm listening, and I, I didn't say very much in the conversation. Some of it was disturbing. And God just gave me the grace to keep my mouth shut for almost the entire conversation. And I got off the phone, and I was shaking. And I went in the house, and I told Laura what had just happened, and I began to pray about it. I mean, just walking around the house, Lord, I, you know, should I even consider what this conversation was? If this is God telling this person to call me like they thought it was, I should for a moment ask the Lord, to, you know, do I consider this? And just a few moments, I heard that still small voice again. It is time to build. And I went back in. I said, Laura, you know, I'm not even going to waste time praying about this. God has already given me the answer months ago. It is time to build was his answer. So if we just continue with a small group, we're going to have a small group, and that's going to be okay. But it is time to build. And honestly, I wanted to stay up all night that night, planning and studying and getting more Sunday school lessons ready and more sermons ready. And I, I just didn't even want to go to sleep that night because suddenly the discouragement had turned to motivation. Now I'm like, oh, wow, they're telling us it's not time to build. They're telling us run home to daddy. Literally, I was told, run home to my daddy. 
But no, it's not time to run home to dad. No, it's not time to go find somewhere else that's more convenient. It's time to build. And so Laura began to tell me, hey, this is something I think I need to start getting involved in at church. This is a way I need to start helping more at church. It was very practical ways that we could help literally build. Spiritual ways to help build people up and help encourage. It is time to build. And so that is my answer to anyone who tries to get me to leave North Belt. It is time to build. And that's encouraging for me. That's exciting to me that God has a future for us here. So the first was a message of correction. They were not building. They had gone home. They had built their houses. They had their houses nice, but the house of God was in disrepair. And he said, it's time to build. So they start building. What happens? We get message number two. And this is the one that is often left out of outlines of Haggai. This is message, what I would call message number two. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you. This is a message of confirmation. I am with you, saith the Lord. What did Jesus say when he gave the great commission to his disciples? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in my name. He gave all those instructions and he said, for lo, I am with you. And so here is the message they get, build my house, I am with you but he doesn't say I'm with you until they start to build. And when they start to obey his voice, God said, okay, I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the four... And 20th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. Now we move on to message number three, a message of comparison. Now, if we were to go to Ezra chapter three, in fact, let me flip over there real quickly. Let's see what happened when they started building Ezra chapter three. They laid the foundation of the temple. They see what's happening Things aren't as big, they're not as grand, they're not as pretty as Solomon's temple had been. So what is the result of that? Ezra chapter 3 and verse 12, But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men and had, that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice. Why did they weep with a loud voice? They saw the first house. They remembered, oh, get this, they remembered the good old days. They remembered when North Bell was really big. Pastor mentioned that recently. He talked about, you know, the awards that North Bell got for the fastest growing Sunday school somehow or another. And, um, they were looking back at big glory days. And so they were sad. They were weeping because it didn't look like that. I mean, can you imagine? You've had this big, grand, glorious Solomon's temple, the wealth of it unbelievable. And now they're building this little thing? It's like a little shack in comparison. So they start weeping, but many of them shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. 
So they are overwhelmed, some with grief, some with joy, as they are comparing the older men, comparing what has happened before to what is happening now. This is, gives us an idea of what is in their minds when Haggai preaches his third message here. It says, in the seventh month of the, oh, sorry, in the one and twentieth day of the month came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel. Okay, let's go down to verse three. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Notice he says this house. How many of you is left that saw it in its first glory? And how do you see it now? It is not in your eyes. Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now, so what does he tell them? When they look and they say, this is just no big deal. This is so chintzy. This is so small. And it's causing them to weep out loud. He says, be strong. What an answer. Ah, you're sad. It's not what it was before. It's almost like God's saying, deal with it. Be strong. We're doing something new now. We've moved on. Oh, that was yesterday. That's over. Put your eyes on what is before you today. Yeah, you're, comparison. you're comparing these things. It's time to be strong, O Zerubbabel. So he calls for the governor, be strong. And be strong, O Joshua. He gets very specific to the high priest, be strong. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. So he calls the governor to be strong. He calls the high priest to be strong. And he calls the people themselves to be strong, saith the Lord, and work. All the talking we can do about abiding in Christ, all the talking we can do about being, there's a reason to abide and there's a reason to be. And that is to work. If there's no work following the being and the abiding, we haven't really read the Bible. Oh, we read a couple chapters, but while we're working, yes, we're supposed to be being and abiding. While we're being and abiding, we are supposed to work. I mean, the Bible numerous times throughout Scripture calls for work. I mean, it starts with the story of creation. And why did God rest on the seventh day? Because he had been working for the six days. So God's word calls for work. And here the message to the people is stop crying about what it looks like today in comparison to the past, and work. Be strong and work. What a powerful message. We could stop right there. The whole thing could just be right there. It's time to work. Now, he gives them a message from the past. He references something that happened in the past. He said, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Don't be afraid of these people around you. Don't be afraid of this task. Have no fear. Why? Because I have the same covenant I, had, I made with you when I left Egypt. When you went out of Egypt, he said, I am still that God. I still have that covenant with you. This house may have changed, but God has not changed. The house may have changed, but God's covenant with his people had not changed. So they could stand around and cry, comparing the good old days with today all day long. And God said, stop crying, be strong, work. 
I am the same. My covenant, my promises is the same. So don't be fearful. Verse number six, now he points them to the future. First the past, now the future. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once in a little, sorry, yet once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. The glory of this latter house. Now, I've always looked at this and said, he, God is talking about the house they're building right now. But as I've studied this more in context this week, I've started questioning, is the this house, this house, the little house they're building right now, or is he, he has switched, he's talking about the future. The day he comes and shakes the heavens and the earth, the day he shakes all nations. What's he talking about? He's talking about the great tribulation period. He's talking about the, the day of God's wrath. He's talking about he's going to come one day. He's going to disturb things. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells about this enormous, gorgeous temple that's going to be built during that thousand year reign of Christ. I think that's the one he's talking about here. Because if we take context, not just the context of the book, but this part of the book, he's talking about the future. The, the house they're building right now is going to be greater. Yes, it's going to be disturbed and it's going to be messed up during the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. But it's going to be Herod the Great or heard the not-so-great, is going to rebuild that temple, and he's going to make it beautiful again. And Jesus is going to show up. And Jesus coming to that temple, driving out the money changers, all that, that would make the temple greater than the first one because Jesus didn't walk in that in his human feet. But I don't think still that that's the, 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 the temple that they're talking about. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house, the latter house, the one in the latter days, shall be greater than of the formal, former. So God's saying, you're standing here crying because you remember the old temple. You remember Solomon's temple. You remember the good old days. I love what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, when talking about this passage, he said, you know, I remember them talking. I hear people my age talking about the good old days. He said, I don't remember them being that good. He said, I, I just don't get it. I didn't think they were that great. <laughs> but here they were. They had some great days they were looking back on. I mean, they were glory days in Solomon's temple. But he said, there's a better one coming. And I took this artist's depiction because it was just a computerized picture, depiction of Solomon, the entryway into Ezekiel's temple of the millennial reign of Christ. And I just made it blurry like a dream. Because we can only imagine what that's going to be like. But it's going to be far grander, far greater. And look what he says. And in this place, in the latter house, will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. There will be no peace in the Middle East until Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes and sets up his kingdom and his temple is built on the Temple Mount. That is when there will be real peace. And so here we have this message of comparison. He says, you're crying about the past. 
or about the present not being as good as the past. He said, but there's a future that's even better. So we need to have a different perspective on things. See an eternal perspective. Then we have a message of consecration. So the priest, uh, he's told to go to the priest. This message, uh, message one, I forgot to give this. Message one would have been preached. I said that sometime August or September of 520. And then this was the second message of confirmation some 21 days later. Then in October, there would have been the message of comparison Then in December, either the 18th or the 24th, the last two messages were preached the same day. J. Vernon McGee said he believed it was December 24th, and he preached both messages the same day because it was Christmas Eve, and he wanted to get home to celebrate Christmas. And he asked people to please not send him letters about that because he was joking. He had gotten a 16-page letter from someone one time explaining to him that they didn't celebrate Christmas yet in that day and that no one should be celebrating Christmas today because it's an evil holiday. And so they went on and on and on. Anyway, he said, don't waste your time. I am joking. But possibly December 24th. I've seen that date given more than the other. But anyway, sometime in December, Haggai preached these last two messages. The first one is a message about consecration. He says in verse 12, God told him, go ask the priest this question. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. What was his point? It was real simple. Question is, can somebody walk around with clean stuff? Can a priest, you know, he's got a holy garment on. It's clean. It's sanctified for use in the temple. And he's got this meat from the temple that is sanctified. It's holy. And he walks around and he goes and he starts brushing up against oil. Just regular common things. Are those things suddenly going to become holy because this consecrated garment and consecrated meat has touched it? He said, no, it's not going to happen. So, to make that very a very simple visual, if I take this clean and pour it into the dirty, it doesn't get it clean. But if I take the dirty and I pour it into the clean, uncleanness always contaminates the clean. Unholiness always contaminates the holiness. What's he saying? The Jews had a new location. They were no longer in Babylon. But had that made them holy? They hadn't changed a thing. All they changed was location. Geography had changed. Um, now they, had, they were starting to practice their religion again. But had that changed anything? They had started practicing their religion and weren't building the temple. They were practicing their religion. They were um, taking part in the festival of um, tabernacles, yet they weren't building. So had that brought them cleanness? Had that made them holy? The answer is no. Verse 14, then answered Haggai and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. Even the building of the temple, they had made unclean. And that which they offer there is unclean. 
And now I pray you consider from this day and upward from before the stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the press fat, far to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hell in all the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day. Now, what's the problem here? They had finally decided to start obeying, but their hearts weren't right. So this is showing that balance of being and doing that we need to be walking in obedience to God. If we sit on our bottoms and do nothing but read our Bibles and say, I'm just abiding, we are only half fulfilling God's word. Our hearts are not right. How can you abide and your heart not be right? I have to question whether you're actually abiding in Christ. Because when we abide in Christ, there's going to be two things happen. There's going to be the flip side, which is we start doing things for God. There is some action that takes place. You say, well, I'm stuck in bed. I can't do anything. Well, then you start praying for people. You start finding things you can do. Charlotte Elliott became a great hymn writer. She was bitter against God because she had become an invalid. She's stuck in bed. What can she do? Well, first of all, she got saved. What happened after that? Well, she started writing hymns for people that were stuck in bed. They published a whole um, invalid's hymn book. Uh, One of those hymns is Just As I Am, Without One Plea. How many people walked the aisle in Billy Graham Crusades receiving Christ as that hymn was sung and their hearts were touched by that hymn? That happened while a woman stuck in bed. But once she got saved and got her heart right with God, God began to show her things that she could do, ways she could be involved. But first she had to consider her ways. So he's calling for them to consider their ways. Look down at verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. So you're not seeing a fruitful land yet. Then he says, from this day, will I bless you? From what day? The day they got their hearts right with God. Now, did they fully get their hearts right with God? Read Ezra. Read Nehemiah. Read Haggai. Well, the rest of Haggai. Well, go to Zechariah. Then read Malachi. And then read the book that comes after that. Oh, wait, there's not an Old Testament book that comes after that. They never actually got their hearts fully right with God. So you have the 400 silent years. Why? God had spoken to them and spoken to them and spoken to them. He brought them back to their land, resettled them. Their religion was set back up where they were supposed to be worshiping him. But he said, when you get your heart right with me, I'm going to start blessing you. What a powerful, powerful truth. So he said, your location didn't sanctify you. Your religion's not sanctifying you. It's a heart relationship with me. And then we have our last message here. A message of coronation. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now, this is a very personal message. You have a sermon to preach to one person. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the governor, who has brought this people back from Babylon, who has tried to govern them all this time, who has had problems with getting the temple built, who's had problems with the government, had problems with the people, 
Now he's got two prophets preaching at him that he himself, as well as the people, need to be right with God. Well, I would say that Zerubbabel's heart got right with God because look what he says. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Oh, there he goes back to talking about the future time again. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. This is talking about that battle at the great, at the end of the great tribulation period, that time when Jesus comes, destroys the heathen, and sets up his throne and his kingdom. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, here's three points God gives him. I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now look at these three things. Number one, he says, I will take thee. Now, this could be confusing because Zerubbabel has been dead for a long time. And then once we go through the tribulation period and we get to the end of that, he'll be dead for even longer. He had seven years added to his death by that, whenever that comes. And then he says, then I'm going to take you. From where? I would take it, he means from the grave. So, Zerubbabel, he says, I'm going to take you. I'm going to raise you up in the last days. You're going to come back alive. That's pretty cool. So when the day of peace comes, he said, you've had to rule in a day of calamity and trouble. It's been hard work. He said, but when peace comes, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make you like a signet. That was the ring that a, a ruler would wear that would have his emblem. It would work for a signature. He would pound his fist into something or put it into hot wax, and he would leave his seal. What was that demonstrating? You're going to be like a signet. In other words, you're going to be an important ruler. You're going to have authority in my kingdom. So when Jesus comes to set up his his throne to rule and to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years over this earth. He said, Zerubbabel, you're coming back. I'm going to take you. I'm going to make you like a signet. And then he says, because I've chosen you. Now look at the wording here. I will take, I will make, and then he says, I have. In the future, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to take you and I'm going to set you in authority. That will happen in the future, but now I've already chosen you. What a powerful thing. The Zerubbabel had been a man that had led God's people, had listened to the messages of the prophets, had obeyed the Lord, and God ends this book with this personal message. I will take thee, I will make thee, I have chosen thee. There was going to be a reward you could really take these five points here and put them into this. The correction was the rebuke of the workman. Number two, the confirmation was the Lord of the workman. Jesus says, I am with you. Number three is the comparison. 
the future of the workman. You may be looking at the past and the present, but you need to look at the future. Number four is the consecration, the heart of the workman. Their heart needed to be right with God. And number five, coronation, the reward of the workman. I don't know, but I believe Haggai has become my new favorite book of the Bible. What a powerful little book. What great promises for God's people. He says, the day your heart's right, I'm going to start blessing you. What a powerful thing. And then to see God's reward for Zerubbabel. It just challenges me to want to serve the Lord, want to obey him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would enable us this week to really live out this message. Lord, that our hearts would be right with you. And Lord, we would see the message, it is time to build. And Lord, that we would be strong, that we would be looking to the future, that we would have our eyes on eternity. We would realize that things may not be so great today, but there is a better day coming when we're in your presence. And Lord, help us to live for your presence and to live for the reward that you're going to give us one day. Help us to be faithful to you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.